Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. As you would expect, a show about football um, has quite a bit to say about teamwork. And that's our theme for today. Our special guests for this episode are Dan Anderson and Dr. Joy Osland. Warning, we expect that you have watched Ted Lasso, at least through season two. There will be spoilers ahead and scenes that don't make sense if you don't have some familiarity with the show. TLTLLT presents a scene from season one, episode two. Jamie, I think that you might be so sure that you're one in a million that sometimes you forget that out there you're just one of 11. And if you just figure out some way to turn that me into us, the sky's the limit for you. That is one of my favorite arcs in the, uh, in the show, is Jamie's progression through being all about himself to being too little about himself to eventually understanding who he is in relation to the people around him, what he can do right. and how he can bring uh, more to the whole group. What is teamwork in the classroom to you? Well, we were having this discussion just yesterday with some of my students as they were trying to work on a project together. And um, it's much different than what some of them think, which is much more cooperation. You do this part of the problem, I'll do this part of the problem, mm -hmm. and we'll put it together. And then they complain about group work because somebody hasn't done their part. Right. And so we've been talking a lot about this idea of the difference between co cooperation and collaboration. Oh, and, tell, tell me more about that. Well, again, I, I, I think about cooperation as being us individually breaking apart a problem and then and doing it. Okay. Collaboration is where it feels like they're building upon each other's ideas, there's, they're giving each other feedback. As a result, it's bigger and better than if they'd just done individual parts that they brought together. But if they do work with other people, just there's so much going on, right? They, um, they're putting things into words, they're sharing their ideas, they're having to make sense of what the other person is saying. Just the intellectual activity that you're doing is so much richer and more complex than um, working by yourself on a problem. There's a quote that I often use early on in the class that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And uh, that proverb fits it perfectly, right? Because that student for sure can finish more quickly by themselves. Right. Right. And, and that's being successful at what math has been for them mm. up until that point. Right. What does it mean to be good at mathematics? Mm. And, what is, and what have they experienced? Which then reminds me of um, Yuri Treisman's work. How so? He was observing in math classes at University of California, I believe, Berkeley. Yeah. And he was seeing that students, particularly African-American students, were doing poorly in, in a calculus course. So one of the things that he developed in his workshop model was to get folks together to collaborate because he saw that as being a powerful way to be successful. Treisman's work also talks about, again, that a lot of the times that the work that the, the groups were going doing together was informal. It involves some other aspect often, maybe, maybe a meal, right, mm -hmm. or, or getting together. Uh, we see in Ted Lasso that that same thing occurs, right? That the, these relationships, that Ted is trying to create a community that is goes beyond the locker room and, and, and the pitch. The TLTLLT players perform a scene from season one, episode six. Wait, so coach, how do we fix this? We can't change the past. No, Sam, no, we cannot, but we can choose to honor it. Now, those young men, they made the ultimate sacrifice. So I think it's only fair that we sacrifice something of our own. I'm going to ask each and every one of you to go home tonight, find something, an item, something personal, something that you might truly value, and I want you to bring it tonight to the clubhouse at midnight. This seems like he's taking advantage of this situation to do a couple of things, to bring the team together, also to have the team share something that's important to them. Mm. And so they're getting to know each other in a deeper and more important way. They're, 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 becoming, they're, they're becoming closer. 
yeah. okay, getting to know each other that way. His goal is for them to be kind of fully functioning humans. Mm -hmm. and, and how much does that connect to our goal of humanizing the classroom, right? right? It probably will in some way affect better um, you know, traditional academic success. But the, the main thing it's doing is much, so much more important than that. Right. What ways are there then for us to bring, ask our students to bring what's important to them in the classroom? Okay, well that for sure sounds to me like um, Gloria Latson Billings, mm -hmm. right? And Dream Keepers and in other of her work and Rochelle Gutierrez's work. You quoted one of the tables here, so why don't, mm -hmm. we, why don't we go ahead and kind of read through okay. those items. So in chapter four, she's talking about in social relations, the difference between an assimilationist classroom, right? And that's a word you hear get used in a lot of diversity work, right? The, the only way for members of out communities to join is to take on the traits of the dominant community. Right. Right. And those include things like the teacher-student relationship is fixed and it tends to be hierarchical and limited to formal classroom roles. And then she contrasts that with kind of a culturally relevant, uh, I think she's the one who coined the term, mm -hmm. right? Culturally relevant pedagogy, um, teacher-student relationship is fluid, humanely equitable, extends to interactions beyond the classroom and into the community exactly what you were just talking about. So then in assimilationist, the teacher demonstrates connections with individual students. And in a culturally relevant classroom, teacher demonstrates a connectedness with all students. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking to a student yesterday where they had recognized we did a field placement and that they had called on a particular student because they knew that student had the answer. Yeah. And I said, that's such a great awareness, right? We do that, teachers do that all the time, mm -hmm. right? Connect with those individual students. So the assimilationist teacher encourages competitive achievement. Right, um, and you know, we're very familiar with that, right? Mm -hmm. Who's fastest, who's first, yeah. who's best? Um, our guest, uh, uh, you'll hear later in the program, Joy talks about that status. Yeah. So as opposed to a culturally relevant classroom, the teacher encourages a community of learners. That connects to uh, what you were talking about in particular. Right, that was Bury Treesman's work, trying to create a community, mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly what Ted's trying to do in um, the scene that we just watched. Right. And then the last one for assimilationist is teacher encourages students to learn individually in isolation. Versus a culturally relevant classroom, where the teacher encourages students to learn collaboratively. Students are expected to teach each other and be responsible for each other. And there's that word again, collaboratively, mm -hmm. right? And that they're teaching each other, right? That there's a, a in, in the Dream Keepers, where this comes from, there's uh, this idea that we are responsible for one another. When, you know, that responsibility um, when you start to see it, it's just, that is like one of my favorite, favorite things to see in a classroom. Yeah. You know, a group will, will be, you know, the, they're monitoring how people are doing and they will directly try to lift up somebody that they can tell um, isn't understanding or doesn't feel comfortable with what's happening. The very first one, this teacher-student relationship is fluid, um, reminds me again of another scene. The TLTL LT players present a scene from season one, episode 10. All right, gentlemen, school is in session, and today's lesson is trick plays. At least that's what we call them back home. What do they call them here again? Elaborate set pieces. Yeah, we're going to stick with trick plays. That's a lot more fun. Now, the idea behind every trick play is to have chaos rain down upon your opponents and stun them. So I want you all to think about every single trick play you ever run your entire time playing this sport. Anybody got one? What I love about that scene is the way that it starts, though, John. It starts by school is in session. Yeah. So, and, and yet school is in session by I want to learn from you. Joy will talk about this a little bit later, but it reminds me of what's in their book, Smarter Together, which talks about this difference between participation and acquisition, mm -hmm. right? This, this metaphor. 
And too many classrooms have an acquisition perspective. And from that, the, the teacher is giving them information, right? The, the students are acquiring it. Let me show you what to do. Here though, this is much more of a participation it's the, that metaphor where they're working together and teaching each other. Mm -hmm. and I think about the very last example on culturally relevant where they're teaching each other. Right. And, and we're mostly here talking about kind of within a classroom, but that to me feels like it has echoes beyond. Like mm -hmm. now we could be talking about teacher-teacher uh, teamwork. If we believe in this idea of teamwork, if we believe in the idea of collaboration, we need to make time and space for it. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like in your classes? Well, and I don't, I probably won't even say too much about that here because um, one of our guests today, Dan, oh, nice. really uh, addresses, I think, some of this coming from that same source, Peter Lilladell's uh, Building Thinking Classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he addresses some of the things I try to do in, in uh, my classroom, um, and he's talking about it in a, a high school um, algebra to honors pre-calc kind of context. Great. We'd like to welcome Dan Anderson to the podcast. He is an exciting hockey coach and high school teacher in New York. Dan, would you please introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Sure. Thanks for having me, John. Um, so I've been, I'm a math and computer science teacher. Um, I've been teaching for, uh, I think it's like in 18, 19 years, something like that. Um, and I've been coaching for about 20, uh, coaching hockey at different levels for about 20 years. Uh, now I'm just coaching my kids. We're talking about teamwork. So that connects really well to what made us wonder about if we could talk to you for this episode um, was you gave a recent presentation at NCTM, Standing Room Only, Use Vertical Whiteboards to Transform How Students Interact with Each Other. Uh, can you talk us through the presentation a little bit? Sure. Um, so I've been following um, the work from uh, Alex Overwick and Peter Lytahall um, Alex is a math teacher in Ottawa, I think Ottawa, yeah, that's right. And Peter is, was at Simon Fraser University, and I believe that's Western Canada. Is that right? Am I making that I up? I think so, yeah. Um, so they, they've been doing work for 2015, or 2000, even earlier maybe, but I first saw Alex speak at NCTM in Boston. Um, so like he sort of, he talked about standing, sort of the, it was the thinking classroom before they called it the thinking classroom. It was more about standing whiteboards and randomized grouping and um, that, that whole idea. So I, the presentation I did uh, at NCTM this year was sort of about like how I took his like 13 or 15 different ideas. And I don't really, I can't focus on 15 things at once. I'm like a, I'm a micro guy. So like I focused on three or four at most and that's sort of what i talked about in that thing like how do i use these three or four ideas uh in my math classroom um in my pre-calc honors classroom if i'm teaching pre-calc honors um because sometimes when you write a book that has an audience that's from like k through 12 it's hard to get specific uh details so like i wanted to talk about hey these details work for me in my classroom and i've been trying things since 2015 and these things i've tried and these things that um that maybe don't work great for, for me, but, but um, so that's where I, I've come from. Um, so that, so that sort of broke down, that talk sort of broke down to the, the biggest thing for me was using standing whiteboards. So he calls it um, vertical non-permanent services, but standing whiteboards is really what it boils down to. Um, random grouping is, and those are the, the by far the most two important things. Um, so standing whiteboards is where Students are standing up in groups of two or three, um, and they're working on a problem together. Um, the benefit that that helps, and then the team idea of it that really sort of brings in like the Ted Lasso idea is you have students working together in smaller groups. That's sort of like an offense or a defense or a, a pairing, but they're they're all working together as well. So they're not like uh, they're not taking their knowledge and writing a piece of paper and sort of like um self inward facing they're sort of looking around and they're helping each other out you'll see these groups just by by nature they'll look around a little bit and look around the room and they'll say oh and they'll see oh john solved it that way and they'll walk over to john and say hey how'd you do that step three um and then john gets to be the expert and they john 
didn't feel like an expert that day. Maybe he doesn't feel like an expert in math class in general, but he got to feel like a little bit of an expert there because he's sharing his work um, and he sort of, he can help out other people. So the second most important idea is random grouping. So the idea of random grouping is the students come in and they have random randomized groups and it's truly random. Um, I make a, a small product, a big production in the beginning, but then a small production every time I randomize groups so sh- to verify that at least one kid sees that I have like the random button set when I'm shuffling the groups. Um, because then they start to realize that we're in, we're all in this together. Um, I'm not just in here with my friend. I might be grouped with my friend. That's very possible, but I'm with this with some random person. This person I don't know yet. Um, maybe this person can help me out. And then as they go and they get random groups throughout the year, um, they, they're grouped with almost everybody, if not everybody. And they're able to see that this person, oh yeah, this person uh, is really good at like organizing the information. And so they'll, you'll actually see them, uh, the students go around and help each other out with students that they didn't have any idea who they were at the beginning of the year. Um, it really helps at my school, at least. Uh, we have a pretty big school. It's like 850 in a class. Uh, a graduating class. So they're literally possibly in the room with someone they've never been in the room with before. Um, right. So I make a big production of randomized groups. So you have to introduce yourself. Um, um, so how it works best for me is like, I only do randomized groups once every two weeks. Um, the book talks about doing it every day. That just got a little too busy for me. It just took up too much class time. And I like the idea that they're making a connection with a, with a person over a, a time. So they get to know that person a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I stretched it past two weeks, uh, the students would complain. They would, um, <laughs> even if there's a group randomly with their friend, they'd be like, uh, Mr. Armstrong, are we doing like new groups today? Cause it's been a while, even if they're with their friends. Um, cause they, they sort of do look forward to that random, random groups as, as, as it goes. What would be challenging for somebody who kind of want to get, wanted to get started trying this? The challenge in getting this started is probably getting whiteboards in your room. That's mostly the challenge. Like at the district I'm at right now, um, the administrators absolutely love it, but there's red tape that happens since I, I like to change classrooms every year. Um, so it's, it's, it's a big lift to get a classroom with whiteboards around it. Um, even if the administrators like it, it's still a lot of red tape. They have to do this and an order ticket. So getting that going can be difficult. There are some ways that quickly get started. Um, there's shower board. You can get shower board at Lowe's or Home Depot for, 12 bucks um, for a sheet and put that up and that's great. Um, but then a lot of times the hardest thing when you read, when you read his book or read his literature, it's like, great. Awesome. He's got really cool problems. He's having these groups work on really fun problems. Like they're working on some really cool problem solving thing where they're trying to solve or like links in a gold chain and they're trying to, but how do I teach like my curriculum? Cause at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter, I'm required to have a certain amount of things taught. And like that awesome, cool go chain idea doesn't fit my curriculum at all. I have to teach about, I have to teach about rational functions. I have to teach about this. I have to teach about uh, completing the square. Um, so how does, how does that fit in? So one of the things I presented about was like, here, here's what I do. I just have a present, I have a problems and problems up on the whiteboard and they just go for it. And then Eventually, I'll take some pictures of solutions and put that up on, um, I'll take a picture with my tablet so they can, uh, they can see that their work is being valued. But the hardest thing is like, how do I teach my curriculum this way? Um, teachers have trouble with how do I teach my curriculum? So like, uh, we're just doing exponential log. So I, how, do, how do I do exponential log, solving an exponential log equation? I put up four problems and say, go for it, have fun. Uh, let me know what you can get or you can get stuck. And then you can walk around the room and see where they are. Um, and so then, then the teacher's next step, that's the next part that gets stuck on. And so you're like, but if it's all on the whiteboards, what get, how, how do they learn from that? How are they going to write it all down? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think another important step there is that you have students. Um, so another important step that I talked about in the presentation was like, how meaningful note taking how do you how do you take notes and so you really tap into their future self you say okay sit down now that was your rough draft you can sit down with your partner because that i make sure they're sitting with their random partner as well um copy we did four or five problems 
whichever one you think is most important, put that in your notebook and like make sure it's nice and clean your solution. Because you might have made some mistakes in the whiteboard here and there. You, you, you've made some false starts. Uh, make sure the one that's in your notebook is all set. And then definitely talk through it with your neighbor to make sure that you understand what is happening at every step. Um, and then a really important clue, uh, uh, like a keyword to use is like your future forgetful self. What is your, what is, what is uh, Dave and two weeks want to have in the notebook? What does David want to have? What's your future self want to have in the notebook so you can refer back to it um, in two weeks? Um, a lot of students have a lot of comfort with like taking a picture of their work on the whiteboard. Uh, they'll never look at that again, most likely. Like, <laughs> ever. But if it makes them comfortable, why not? Uh, I don't, I don't care. Um, and you'll that one fun thing about that too is sometimes when they get super proud of a of a long solution, they'll have their friend take a picture and they like they like <laughs> go in front of the picture, uh, which shows it's like it's sort of working for them. Um, they like that idea. Uh, sometimes they'll sign it. You, I've definitely seen that in class where the students get proud. They'll sign it at the bottom and they'll they'll purposely not erase it so the next class can see that they've solved this problem. <laughs> My favorite thing is it just happened uh, yesterday in class um, where students, I asked them to solve a problem they've never seen before. It was like um, seven raised to the X equals eight raised to the X plus two. It's like a exponential function is exponential function with different bases. So uh, the students came up with three different ways to solve it. It was fantastic. And we have never solved that before. They would get stuck. They'd try things. Um, it's funny because like one corner of the room sort of, they all sort of worked together. So it was like two or three groups sort of working together. Like they were talking, they're working in the groups of two, but they're also talking to each other. So that corner solved it one way. And then other corner solved it, solved it a different way because they had gotten a different starting spot from some student. I don't know who that student was. Um, and so they sort of, then they could share with each other. Um, Here's, I solved it. Oh, I like that better. You know what? When I go to the notebook, I'm gonna write your way because I like your way better or I, they're gonna stay with their way. Um, so have, tapping into their creativity is really, really um, a fun thing. The standing is really important for that energy level. Um, the room I'm in right now, it's like has windows to the hallway and there's one wall that I can't use for whiteboards. We don't have enough space for, if they have like 25, 26 students, I don't have enough space for all the groups of standing. Two groups have to be sitting and they're on these big whiteboards. So they're working together on big whiteboards, but not standing. So they're seated. And it's so much quieter with those groups than it is with the ones that are standing up. Um, mm. They're working well. They're working on math. And it's not like a problem per se. But they also get a little jealous. You'll see when they get assigned to that spot, they're like, oh, I was hoping I can stand sometimes, mm. um, which is fun. Do you see a connection between <laughs> this kind of uh, learner collaboration and equity in the classroom? Absolutely. So equity in the classroom, a big thing about equity in the classroom is like valuing everybody's um, as they walk in the room, valuing who they are as a person, uh, not asking them to uh, step farther or take bigger steps. It's like wherever they are, you want to meet them where they are. That's equity. That's how I view equity in the classroom. And so this, this standing whiteboard is really nice for um, students because it can let them sort of fit the role that they want to be in. If they're sort of uh, a a student that likes to be a little bit more quiet, a little more introspective, they can. They, they can be in a group and be a little more quiet and introspective. They can sort of sit back and uh, ask questions. Um, or if they're a student that wants to be sort of more of a leader, they can sort of do that. They can they can be more of a leader. Um, I, I really think it, it can, it can uh, they can appreciate as they walk in the room, I'm asking them, I'm just asking for the best version of themselves. I'm not asking for them to be someone different. Um, I've definitely had like, quieter students be have success in the classroom um, because they're sort of they might not even like so they might be the people that don't really like working in groups in the beginning of the year they don't see the value in it um, a lot of times they they eventually find the value sometimes they don't like they you know it's just sort of the you didn't win over you can't win over everybody um, but but some of those, sometimes those quieter students are the ones that sort of break out of the shell a little bit and can feel some confidence with math for the first time because they can share their ideas because a lot of times they might be super brilliant on a piece of paper and then they're not their classmates have no idea that they have really good ideas because they're just sort of quiet they're sort of to themselves and they have great ideas on paper but you don't see any of those ideas but when it's up and standing um their ideas are shared um there's nowhere for them to hide 
And that's a scary aspect of it too, but it, it ends up being a really nice thing for a lot of them. Um, likewise, if, if students have big gaps in some of their knowledge, so sometimes, especially with COVID, you see, you see them coming in and they, they've one class got to trig and the other class didn't even touch trig or barely even talked about it, what it is. And we're trying to build on that in pre-calc. That's really tough for the teacher. But with randomized grouping, you can have students sort of be the, the, the expert. It's sort of an expert pair by accident. It's by accident. I'm not setting these expert pairs up. Right. Um, but you might have someone that knows a little bit more about trig, can help out the person that doesn't. And you'll, you'll have them talk to each other and they'll just by that, by by the, they'll find the person near them in a group that can help them the most. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that um, you think would be good to share with people as they're thinking about this? Or You can start off with those problems that uh, sort of a thinking problem, a, a problem solving problem. You don't have to do curriculum stuff. You can start it off small. You can do once a week. We're doing a problem solving problem standing up and you can build in um, more curriculum problems. One really nice place that I just, I do every day is a warm up question. So warm up questions uh, often, like I used to give them on paper, a little slip of paper, then I collect them. And then I, I don't know, I, I didn't I really have time to look over all yeah. 30 papers or whatever it was. So I'd sort of get a gist, but with the thing classroom stuff, as they walk in the room, there's five warm up problems on the board, just go for it. And as they walk in, you can see, you can just, it's so much easier as a teacher to gauge where the class is, especially if you're going to build up on, you're going to build on those warm up questions. I thought, I thought they knew how to solve those log equations, but it, it's clear that we need to talk about this again. We need to try some more problems before we move on. Um, so warm up questions is a really nice way to get them up and moving. They get up and talking. A lot of times kids are, I think of one another COVID thing is like, at least in our school, they're on the computers a ton for like two, three years straight, um, a ton of computer time. And so getting them up and moving can break them out of that sort of like, uh, small small screen thinking where they're just sort of stuck in one little place they can get up and move around i like that a lot and i love the vision of like you're literally surrounded by your formative assessment uh there's one last question that i'm supposed to ask you here um first concert best concert <laughs> uh first concert so i i think my first concert so i was trying i'm trying to remember i'm pretty sure it's uh, I went there when I was 15. It was like the year my friend drove because he was 16. Uh, it was Goldfinger, The Wise Store, and Fun Love and Criminals. And they were playing in Latham, New York. Um, my favorite memory of that one is Fun Love and Criminals were playing. They had a song called Scooby Snacks. And I was like, that might have been the yeah. second song I played. In the middle of that song, they're playing the song. And they look up. And at the soundboard, their manager was getting in a fight with somebody. Oh. <laughs> they dropped their instruments all ran up to join the fight concert over so that was the end of the concert uh that was my first concert so that was pretty pretty entertaining uh my favorite concert uh i'm gonna wimp out and choose two um my wife and i went on our honeymoon to uh, ireland and like by accident we were ending up finishing up in in dublin and flying out and on that night that our last night in ireland was u2 was playing so we have to say u2 in dublin which was amazing <laughs> oh wow and croke stadium was like 80 or 100,000 people which was really really great uh and then four days later we end up back in new york and we went to uh coldplay and coldplay was doing the viva la vida tour at spac and that concert was incredible we were in the lawn because we didn't we didn't have tickets for that one too we just sort of showed up um and in the lawn, you, you have decent view, but it's really crowded. But in that concert, um, the band came all the way out and we saw like a little stage setting up and they played from six feet away uh, three songs. So they w went to that stage and we were six feet away from them playing their little <laughs> song. It was, it was a really, really fun set of concerts. That was like four days apart, those two concerts. Um, what a week. It was great. It was great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, Thank you again, Dan, for being with us. Um, uh, just, I think, uh, kind of inspiring in the scale of the effect that you're getting and um, uh, kind of the smooth path you've made for people to be able to to get started, to give it a go if they want. Well, thanks to, thanks to you, John, for having me. And thanks, uh, Dave, too. Um, you two are just is a really fun podcast. Um, 
I love, I love the, the athletics and um, school connections. I see those connections all the time in the math classroom. I'm always talking about team sports and how coaching works. And when I'm coaching, I'm always talking about what I do in the classroom. So it's, it's a really nice connection. Oh, very good. It's great. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Welcome to excuse our minor intermission. After watching a near final edit of the last section, a question arose in our group chat. I'm wondering if there's a place for a quick mention that this is assuming that everyone can stand. We recognize this as a legitimate concern and something we needed to address. Well, we felt bad that we hadn't considered people with different abilities during the initial conversation, it gave us a chance to collaborate on next steps. Our group chat filled with possible ideas. We could make individual whiteboards available that learners could use at a table. We could provide learners with stools or chairs placed by the vertical whiteboards that they could use if needed. We could ask the Teaching Like Ted Lasso community for suggestions. The reason we're sharing these ideas is to make some of our thinking visible for others to see and to reinforce the power of collaboration. This has been Excuse Our Minor Intermission. Dr. Joy Osland is an assistant professor of mathematics education at Grand Valley State University. Her research interests include complex instruction, social justice, and school culture. So we'd like to, to welcome you, Joy. Um, thanks for join us, joining us on the Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast. Uh, focus today is teamwork. Are, are you familiar with the show? It has been a while since I've watched um, through the first two seasons, but um, we loved it. Okay. So on the, yeah. on the show, we do uh, sometimes a silly thing that's taken from the show. Ted comes up with odd questions. Right. So one he springs on people is, First concert, best concert. This might be the hardest question you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up, as did Dave, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is fairly remote. Our opportunities for concerts were pretty limited. So the concerts you saw were whoever happened to come <laughs> to the UP that time. And so I think uh, most people might look at this and think about rock concerts or big venues, but... Um, this immediately brought to mind a memory that I have. So there is a uh, an auditorium attached to a school in Marquette, the Kaufman Auditorium. And um, they had a series of concerts. Uh, I was a kid and my mom bought season tickets. And they were on school nights. I think they were on Sunday nights. And so we went to a ballet and we went to a symphony. Of course, it finished past your bedtime and we stopped on the way home at Big Boy to get that dessert. <laughs> Those are my first memories of concerts. And to be honest, my favorite concerts are small, sort of intimate house concerts. I have a lot of friends who are musicians. And so I love to do that. I, I did get to see U2 when they were at Spartan Stadium. And that was a pretty impressive experience. That's one of the few big, you know, rock concerts that I've been to. And it was beautiful night outside and, you know, an impressive spectacle and good music. So that might be one of the more memorable ones. But I also love, love, love concerts where kids are making music. You know, my kids were involved in band and elementary school, choral concerts and band later on in high school and middle school. And that makes me happy to be at a, a children's concert. That's very good. Those aren't for everybody. No. <laughs> Joy, you wrote the book Smarter Together as part of a team. So what was that like? Well, there were six of us. And we have a motto, uh, which we learned from Lisa Jilk, which is that no one of us alone is as smart as all of us together. And you definitely have to believe that and value collaboration to write a book with six people. It started when um, four of us were graduate students at MSU and two of us were professors there. And Lisa Jilk, who's one of the book authors, she was a grad student with us. She introduced us to complex instruction. So Lisa put us through a, sort of a week of, of complex instruction boot camp. So what we did after that, everybody was excited. Um, many of the teachers were ready to run right out and take this up. And so we followed them. 
and we found out how they were adapting things to make them work in elementary, the things, um, elementary context, the things they were inventing, the ways they were taking up those principles. So three of us ended up writing our dissertations. Um, I wrote mine on teachers learning to use complex instruction. Others were written on students learning in those classrooms. And then after we had done all this work, we came back together and said, we need to put this all together in a book. Teachers had been asking us for that also saying, you know, we had this great week, but there was so much packed in. How do we, we need one place where we can remember, you know, everything we've been doing. And so, so what we did was um, Helen Featherstone and Sandra Crespo took the lead. Helen is not living anymore, um, but was a huge organizer of all of us getting us together. Once we had an outline uh, we decided who was drafting what sections, and Helen did all of the collecting. This was before Google Docs was widely usable, so it was a lot of collecting from people and compiling and sending things back out. The ch there are challenges, of course, to writing a book with six people, but we also agreed that studying collaboration individually was an oxymoron and that it just didn't seem it didn't seem right you know, to us at its heart, we are doing this together as a team, even still. But there are some barriers to writing a book with six people, one of which was that we weren't allowed to put six names on the cover. Uh, they wanted to put Helen and Sandra's name on the cover and they said, no, we, it's all or none. One of the norms for complex instruction is that often everyone sticks together and we didn't want to break those norms by highlighting certain authors putting two on the cover. You know, it was a lot of work and some heart heartache and sweat and tears but it's a better book because we all contributed so what what does effective collaboration look like either in mathematics or among learners or among teachers or between teachers and learners and we can think about it at all of those levels but i would say that effective collaboration what it looks like it's what happens when everyone is participating and everyone is seen and treated as people who have something to offer and something to learn. We could have group work that looks really nice and pretty and smooth, but people aren't actually engaging in each other's ideas. You know, we've all seen the big problem when collaboration is not going well. And um, I think especially all teachers have have seen it where one or two students are are doing all the intellectual heavy lifting, making all the decisions, and another couple of students are not. I've heard publications refer to this as, you know, hitchhikers, right? Folks kind of hanging hanging on in the group. And so we're all familiar with that big problem of group work being unequal participation. And that's what complex instruction addresses. There are lots of kinds of group work and, you know, collaboration and um, complex instruction. It's particular to group work that deals with issues of status. So status is a ranking system where everyone knows it's better to have a higher rank and it's based on perceptions of competence and who's going to be the best at the group task. And we all have ideas about what competence looks like and we're constantly making judgments about our competence in relationship to other people's competence. And especially in math, where many people have been seen as not math people, right, where we have sort of this idea that there are math people and not math people that persists despite many of us trying to get rid of that idea. Status becomes really an important thing to look at. And status is what causes unequal participation because the people who are expected to be more competent participate more and then they look even more competent and so they get even more opportunities to participate and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And often as teachers, we see students who aren't participating and we think this is a discipline issue involving the under-participators, but it's usually much more complicated than that. And often the there are over-participators who are not allowing others access to the materials or to the ideas. And again, it it, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less you participate, the less others see you as competent, the less people ask for your, your ideas. What you all wrote in the book really was powerful to me in terms of reframing the way of thinking about what's going on in group work. The important part is when I see unequal participation in my classroom, sort of tracing it back and thinking, what am I doing to either disrupt or perpetuate what's happening there. It's important to remember that status is dynamic and that we not start labeling students mm -hmm. as high status and low status 
and making those fixed sort of identities. People can be perceived to have different status in different contexts. And even in the same math classroom among different tasks, although something we do see in elementary school is that often status is conferred by the reading group. I asked my daughter, I had her at a meeting with uh, among some of the authors of the book at one point in time, I think she was in first grade. And I said, who's smart in math in your class? And she named a couple of students. And I said, well, how do you know they're smart in math? And she said, well, they read chapter books. I said, well, what about math? And and she said, I just told you, <laughs> right? <laughs> they read chapter books. So there are ways that status can kind of hang with a person uh, across context, but it's dynamic. And the good news about that is that there are research-tested interventions that teachers can use to disrupt status. Do you want to share one of those interventions? There are ways to disrupt status through every step of the process, from choosing and adapting tasks that require multiple abilities so that you might broaden who has a chance to be perceived as more competent. But the two uh, main interventions, one is called a multiple abilities orientation. So when I'm giving a group-worthy task, I will often start it by giving a big long list of abilities that could be used for the task. And then you have to explicitly say, no one person in the group has all of these abilities and everybody has some of them. So you're really going to need to rely on your group. Another one is assigning competence. So that involves uh, a lot of careful watching of students to see what they're doing, providing a lot of opportunities for showing competence through a broad array of uh, you know, a multiple abilities task that requires many abilities, noticing the subtle moves that they might be making that their group might not be noticing, mm -hmm. and then very intentionally making those public for the group. It's not just an intervention for the student who's under-participating. It's, it's primarily an intervention um, for, about making everybody else notice the ability that that student has. So those are two. The thing to remember, I think, is that they all work together. In order for those two interventions to even be possible, you have to be working on a task that requ that actually requires many different abilities. So I tell folks, whether or not you're going to do a multiple abilities orientation with a task, you should always sit down and list the abilities it requires. And if you can't come up with more than five, it might not be a task to do with a group. And that's okay. We don't have to do every task with a group, right? Mm -hmm. But we want to make sure that when we give a task and ask students to work in groups, that it's actually a task that requires a group. Otherwise, it will perpetuate that idea that one one person can take take over the the task for everybody. Um, so, how does the this kind of awareness of status or these interventions or the complex instruction address equity? So, one thing I. I want to say about that is, uh, of course, as as we've mentioned, status interferes with equal opportunities to learn. But status is often aligned with different social markers, we status markers, right? Which might be race, gender, language, income level, and we see those play out on a larger societal scale. But they're also impacting our perceptions of competence in classrooms, and so so that's definitely one way that. Uh, collaboration has to do with equity. It really has brought together a number of principles that we know are equity-focused teaching principles and sort of built a a whole, right, out of those pieces. Um, it provides a framework that sometimes explicitly addresses many of those equity-focused teaching principles. There are things like academic belonging, right? And using multiple representations and requiring multiple abilities. So a lot of the principles and practices of complex instruction are recognized elsewhere, even as, as equity-focused principles. What have you seen as being some of those barriers that get in the way of teachers mm -hmm. implementing teamwork, collaboration, group work in their classroom? Well, I think, of course, there always are the barriers of time. District pacing guides might um, bring a sense of urgency. You might feel like 
you know, when do I have time to teach group work? Sometimes the need to focus a particular curriculum that might be heavily focused on individualism. I think those are challenges to innovating your practice or, you know, taking on new practices always. But I think the biggest, one of the biggest barriers is narrow conceptions of what it means to be capable in mathematics. If the focus is only on calculating and speed, then only a few people are are going to be considered competent. So broadening our ideas so that math competency includes things like communicating, designing, listening, showing connections, creating. This opens up space for everyone to learn that everyone has something to offer and something to learn. And another big barrier is not knowing how to address status issues. Watching and seeing a group that doesn't work as a group and and not having interventions for dealing with that can often get in the way of group work. I will hear teachers sometimes say, you know, I tried it and I'm worried about this unequal participation. And the interventions are extremely effective, but they're not magic bullets and they don't happen quickly. So we have to teach students what it means to do group work, what it means to work equitably, what it means to do group, what it means to do math together. Many of them might not have experienced that before. Well, and you mentioned in the book um, the importance of norms and procedures that are associated with with complex instructions. So complex instruction has ways to address those, those barriers at every level from designing or finding or adapting tasks so that they're group worthy and require multiple abilities um, to using roles and norms, which in CI are different than I've seen in some other versions of collaborative learning because in complex instruction, those roles and norms have to be particularly designed to address status, but by engaging students in the content of the lesson. So if the resource monitor, for example, which might be a role, is only responsible for gathering materials and picking them up, that would not involve them necessarily in, they could do that role without being involved in the mathematics of a task. But we have the resource monitor also be in charge of the group's questions. And in that way, the resource monitor, at the very, very least, has to know what questions the group has and be involved in the mathematics of the task to the extent that is required by that. So it's a different way of thinking about roles and how how we want students to work in a group. Do I want students to go around in the group in a circle and each give ideas? Do I want them to each have a piece of the puzzle or piece of the problem or a clue that that is required for the group to solve the task? And the point is to be constantly teaching students and ourselves, that everyone in the room has something to learn and something to offer. That it's not about who's the smart one, but how are we all getting smarter together? I really like how what you just said about it's not even that we are smarter together, but that's how we're we are getting smarter yes. together. Exactly. Um, that that kind of active positioning of it. Are there other resources you'd like to share with us that uh, you haven't had a chance to mention so far? We've been talking about the book, Smarter Together, um, which is focused on collaboration in elementary math. There is a secondary version or a partner book put out by NCTM, which is Strength in Numbers by Lonnie Horn. There is, as I mentioned, the book Mathematics for Equity, which is a fabulous book that tells the story of Rail Side School by folks who were there. One of the most important books, I think, is Designing Group Work by Elizabeth Cohen and Rachel Lotan. That is sort of the resource on collaboration in in classrooms. There is a fabulous source of tasks that came out of Berkeley in the 90s, which are collaborative logic activities that um, involve mathematics content. The books are Get It Together, United We Solve, uh, Group Solutions, and Group Solutions 2. They're often good ways in for folks who haven't used complex instruction before because they provide a structure for providing different clues to everybody in the group. So whether you, it's a clue toward what what's the mystery number or what's the mystery map, what's the mystery shape, right? Um, lot, lots of uh, opportunity to get kids talking in a way where each one has one clue that they have to offer. Of course, there are lots of sources of tasks that can be available um, to be adapted for group-worthy, to be group-worthy tasks. Some of 
The ones we've had a lot of success with are um, Marilyn Burns tasks from the collection of math lessons or from many other sources by Marilyn Burns. The Mars tasks, which are balanced assessment tasks, are often very rich, can be made into group-worthy tasks. And many math curriculum documents have some lessons marked as group work lessons that might be easier to adapt for complex instruction and pay attention to status. And if that's the case, there is an appendix in Smarter Together that is focused on how do you adapt a task from your own curriculum and and make it group worthy. I often go back to that because I find it helpful when I'm adapting tasks for my context. So So Joy, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Uh, We appreciate the time that you've given, the thought that you've given to this. It's really exciting to me and it's such an honor. Those were amazing. Just, um, I feel so blessed to get to talk to people like this and share what they're doing with uh, listeners to the podcast. Well, and us too. You and I have talked about this outside. This has really uh, transformed the way that I think about my own teaching, right? And I think that uh, that's part of what we were hoping for this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. I think about Stigler and Hebert talking about in the teaching gap, the idea that yeah, you want to show the, teaching, <laughs> the teaching gap. Thank you, Anna. Uh, the teaching gap that um, one of the things that United States teachers think about is that professional development is something that happens to them, and how do we flip that so that teachers feel like they're part of the development of the profession. Well, and boy, that exactly mirrors what we were talking about, about learners, right? They feel that way because that's what they've experienced. Right, right. right. So So part of what we're trying to do here is give teachers this opportunity to to flip the script, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's been a lot of our kind of favorite involvement with teachers is an opportunity to collaborate, Mm-hmm. Um, to start building that community, um, both kind of locally, teachers we get to work with in schools here, and um, as you know, we work within the MITBOS or within mm-hmm. uh, other things, right? That, that kind of um, humane collaboration mm-hmm. is, is the ultimate for me. So what are some ways that our audience can collaborate with us? Uh-huh. So, um, well, so connections that they see, um, people we get to talk to, right? If there's somebody who wants to talk to us about what they're working, how they're uh, trying to achieve any of these goals, we're always interested in talking to them. Mm-hmm. What are some ways you think of? We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. connecting on social media. Yeah, we would definitely love to talk to, to people about what, what they're doing, themes that they see. One of the things that I'm hoping is that this is, becomes a community that can contribute to the development of the profession. Right. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. This has been a good one. Do we not have a bit to end this one? Um, well, I, I, I think, <laughs> I, not that I could think of, but maybe this will be it. <laughs> This is this is the ending bit. Oh man, that's so disappointing. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. I'm sure they'll all be disappointed. Yeah, probably nobody's listening by this point. I I'm I'm not sure I'm listening. By this <laughs> point, so okay. <laughs>